0: Once long ago, long long ago, it was at the time when Magadha was ruling as king in Rajagaha. The Bodhisatta took birth as an elephant into the royal herd of the king. This was no ordinary elephant. Even when still very young, the color of the elephant's skin was rich, dark, beautiful color like polished bubinga wood. Their eyes glittered like the finest cut diamonds, manifesting the five kinds of brightness. Their mouth and tongue were a deep scarlet color, like the finest cloth woven in Benares, the finest silk. Their trunk shone as if... uh, from made of silver flecked with gold red gold and their four feet glowed from within like the finest lacquerware from the temples of Bagan and in this way the little elephant was adorned with the 10 marks that characterize a Bodhisatta, one who would become a buddha it was of consummate beauty and grace and the royal mahout the elephant trainer could not help but notice that this was indeed a very special animal. And he assigned his young son the task of taming and training. And so his son, whose name was Mitra, met the little elephant, and, and he, he loved the little elephant. And the two became inseparable friends very quickly. Mitra named the little elephant Devapriya, which means Beloved of the Devas. He cared for them with every kindness, fed Devapriya by hand, bathed them daily in the river. And the two of them could be seen many afternoons playing together in the water. Mitra's name was really well-suited. It was a good name for him because it means friend, but not just any friend for Mitra has the sense of a friend who protects you from harm, guides you to the right path, and brings you to happiness. Now elephants grow fairly quickly, quickly. and soon Devapriya was large enough that Mitra could uh, mount upon their back and go for a ride, and sometimes the two of them would be seen strolling through the fields and around the lanes on the outskirts of the city or practicing tricks on the sandy banks of the river. And sometimes for fun, Mitra would ask Devapriya to try balancing on just three legs. That's easy enough, a tripod is pretty stable. But when this was mastered, the elephant tried balancing only on their hind legs, or only on their forelegs, and soon could do those things, and even, sometimes, could balance on just one leg. Deva Priya's movements were always graceful and smooth, and even as they grew into adulthood and attained a massive size, larger than any of the other elephants in the herd, with great ears like huge fans, magnificent tusks, they still remained uh, graceful and smooth in their movements. And soon word of their beauty and talents spread across the city and people would come from all around to watch the two friends playing, practicing tricks, roaming about. They just liked to see them. And word reached the king's ears and he commanded that Devapriya and Mitra should come and appear before the royal court. And the king was very taken with Devapriya's size and beauty. He declared that they would be the state elephant from that time forth. And they uh, were given a special paddock in the royal stables and received uh, there only the finest of foods. And then there came a festival day and the king uh, commanded that the city should be adorned like a city of devas with flower garlands and silk banners. And he instructed Mitra and the royal handlers to dress the state elephant, Devapriya, with the finest kinds of trappings, garlands of, made of tuberoses and marigolds, golden and white, a royal saddle finely tooled of leather and adorned with wo- silk woven of uh, silk trappings, Benares silk, and gold, and crimson, and emerald green. And Mitra spoke gently to Devapriya, Priya, told them that the king would be riding in a procession through the city streets, and that this was a great honor for them. And so, mounted on the mighty state elephant, the king did ride through the streets. He was attended by a great retinue of the nobles of the court, and they were all dressed in their finest clothing, bedecked with jewels and lining the streets. And also the people of the city came in, uh, to see the procession, and they lined the streets. And they were moved by the sight of the peerless royal elephant. And they began exclaiming, Oh, what beauty! Oh, what a stately gait! Such fine proportions! What grace! Hail, Devapriya, finest of beasts! An elephant worthy of a universal monarch!" And when the king heard this praise coming from all sides, he became jealous. He thought that he should be the one they were praising, not the elephant. So he decided he would get revenge. He summoned Mitra to him and he said, Do you call that a trained elephant? And Mitra said, Indeed, very well trained. No, growled the king, that elephant is very badly trained. One could hardly say such an elephant is trained at all." Once again, Mitra spoke. Sire Devapriya is very well trained. Well then, if that elephant is so well trained, can you get them to climb to the summit of Mount Vepula? Of course, sire, replied Mitra. Such a climb is nothing to an elephant of this caliber and this training. Away with you then, shouted the king. And so he got down from the elephant, And instructed Mitra to mount in his place. The king went to the foot of the mountain and stood there and Mitra and Devapriya rode, uh, strode up to the top of the mountain easily. They were followed by the king and the courtiers and all the nobles of the court and the people of the town followed along. And when they reached the top of the mountain, the high mountain outside the town, the king made it had Mitra halt the elephant right at the brink of a of a high cliff, a very steep precipice there. And he said, OK, if this beast is trained as well as you say, have them stand on three legs. Now, of course, they had practiced this trick when Devapriya was young. Mitra, sitting high on the elephant's back, spoke softly. Hi, then, my beauty. Oh, my best of friends. Stand thou upon three legs. And moving slowly and gracefully, as though without any effort at all, Devapriya raised one leg and stood firmly on the other three. And it was as if, as if a mighty boulder had come to life and taken on the talents and abilities of a highly trained dancer. Well then, said the king, let's see them stand on two legs, on just the four legs and the great being shifted their weight from their hind legs, standing balanced on just the two forelegs, towering above the crowd like a mighty tree rooted deeply into the earth, firm and strong. Now just on the hind legs, cried the king. Mitra spoke again gently to his great friend, and Devapriya shifted their weight and stood on the hind legs alone, and just as a Tai Chi master, would settle into the horse stance. And standing firm and strong, yet relaxed and supple, Devamitra stood on just the hind legs. Well then, said the king, have that elephant stand on just one leg. The mighty being shifted their massive weight to just the one foreleg and balanced there without even a twitch of their tail or trunk. Incensed that the elephant did not lose balance and fall over the cliff, the king cried out. Now if you can, then make them stand in the air. Mitra thought, in all of India there is no elephant as royal or as well-trained as this. Surely the king is jealous and hopes to make us tumble over the cliff and fall to our death. Whispering softly in the mighty elephant's ear, he said, My friend... O thou finest of elephants, the king wants you to fall over this cliff and get killed. Such a king is not worthy of you. By the power and purity of our friendship and by the merits of all your skillful actions, rise up with me upon your back and let us fly through the air to Benares. And the great being, their heart purified by the power of this love, and endowed with the powers that flow forth from such great merit, did indeed rise up into the air, hovered above the king and the others there gathered, floated like a great dark cloud, that sunset glowing with silver and gold around the edges. Mitra spoke, calling down to the king. He said, "'Sire, this elephant, pure of heart, possessed with the great powers that flow forth from merit is too good for a wooth- worthless fool such as you if you're going to say that to a king it's better to be floating above on an <laughs> elephant <laughs> truly none but a wise and good king is worthy to be the master of such a noble beast when one is not worthy and gets who is not worthy gets an elephant like this they don't see or understand their value Thus they not only lose their elephant, but lose their reputation and the rest of their glory and splendor besides. And so I bid you goodbye. And with this the great elephant sent forth a mighty trumpeting call. (laughs) Rising higher and higher, circling up like an eagle taking flight. They turned slowly to the north, slightly to the west and drifted slowly away. And floating above the fields and the towns, they came at last to Benares. And they halted in midair, hovering above the courtyard of the royal palace. There was a great commotion in the city, for such a sight was unusual at that time of year. It was actually unusual almost any time. All the people ran towards the palace grounds, they cried out, Look at the royal elephant that has come through the air to greet our king and is hovering over the royal courtyard. The so news was taken to the king quickly. He came out of the royal palace and he spoke Greetings, friends. Be welcome here. Please alight that I may greet you properly. So Devapriya descended slowly down, landed with only a whisper. Like a silk scarf landing on the ground. Mitra came down and bowed before the king, and in answer to the king's questions and inquiries, he told the whole story of their leaving Rajagaha. It was very good of you to come here, said the king. You are both most welcome, here and now. Mikasa es Sukasa. <laughs> All things here are yours. The king declared a holiday. He had the city decorated, flower garlands, banners of silk. He installed Devapriya in the royal uh, stable in a special paddock. He had all the finest foods brought. Then he actually divided his kingdom into three portions. He gave one over to Devapriya, one to Mitra, and kept one for himself. And it's said that his power and good reputation grew and grew from that day forth until all of India was under his rule, and he became emperor. They say that as a ruler he was charitable and wise, and that all beings flourished under his care. The End There are a number of uh, threads we could think of. I could say teaching threads. I guess I I have somewhat of an obligation to lead on from this story. <laughs> <laughs> there's different things I might... Uh, although, you know, I don't really have to do that. But I will. <laughs> so there's different things we might look at in terms of the story. There's the sense that... Um, you know this, this story very clearly that excessive pride and, and jealousy don't actually go in a good direction. There's a lot of suffering and struggle and stress that comes from uh, getting overly identified with one's uh, perceived uh, status or role. But this, uh, the main uh, focus or the, the heart of the story is, is really the power of friendship. It's a story of friendship before anything else. And there's an important consideration in terms of this. We think of this uh, sense of friendship, friendliness, which really characterizes the the quality of metta. In Pali, the word mitta is uh, the the, the elephant, Devapriya's friend Mitra. Mitta is the Pali version of that word, Meets friend. Metta is related to that word there's there's um it's worth looking at this in terms of of an attitude that we often bring to practice and I think when we're spending time on a retreat like this it's especially important to consider and and really look at this because we often uh, show up engage with our practice with uh, an attitude that that sometimes is unseen, but it leads us to um, to see ourselves often as as someone with a lot of problems, maybe someone who's confused, struggling, with a lot of uh, things going on, problems that we have to work on and fix, to see through that confusion, undo that somehow. You know, We tend to judge our experience when we sit in meditation. We judge ourselves based on our perceptions of that experience and to take it very personally. And we use it often as evidence of our wrongness in some way. We tell ourselves these stories where they've been told to us and we've taken them on as our own often. Stories that reinforce uh, views and attitudes where we then relate to our own mind and heart, even to our own body, as, our, uh, as an adversary of sorts. This practice, above all, requires this intention to understand rather than to judge. We need acceptance rather than struggle and resistance, and we need kindness instead of blame. In uh, in the first half of the retreat, um, Jeannie, who was here as an assistant, uh, read a quotation that I'd like to read again. I just... Um, found it very uh, clear and uh, kind-hearted, and it speaks to this in a way, so it's worth repeating it. This is uh, uh, some words from uh, someone named Bob Sharples. Don't meditate to fix yourself, to heal yourself, to improve yourself, or to redeem yourself. Rather, do it as an act of love, of a deep, warm friendship to yourself. In this way, there is no longer any need for the subtle aggression of self-improvement, for the endless guilt of not doing enough. It offers the possibility of an end to the ceaseless round of trying so hard that wraps so many people's lives in a knot. Instead, see meditation as an act of love. There's such deep kindness in these, these words, but they point to a very important consideration for us, essential maybe. Because when we approach our practice as a project in order to improve, fix, even to heal ourselves, we can tend to reinforce an attitude that there's something wrong with us. And this is a particularly, I think, subtle and kind of insidious kind of self-cruelty because it comes disguised and it comes in the guise of wholesomeness and and, uh, as though it's somehow based on truth. And I know I came to practice with this feeling that, I was wrong. There was something wrong with me. Something that I had to fix. And it's not that healing doesn't occur. It can and it does. The Buddha has been described as, um, as the greatest of physicians. And the Dhamma has been likened to the, the greatest possible medicine. And it's really, in a way, we could say that it's fitting and appropriate to see our practice as a kind of uh, very deep healing. So there's a reality to that way of looking at things. But we need to be careful how we see this because um, we can often approach um, our practice from this perspective that there's something wrong, that we are flawed, that we are not okay as we are. And at best this is a subtle aggression, as, as uh, was said in that quotation. But actually I think at times it can be a kind of violence towards ourselves. <coughs> Joseph Goldstein, uh, founder of this place, one of the founders, our beloved, colleague and teacher once, uh, he often, there was a time when he was using this these words in, in talks. Um, I think he said he got it from a, the samurai code, the ancient samurai code. And the, just these simple words, I make my mind my friend. And this is a profound possibility with this practice that we might befriend our own mind and heart And for some of us, if we get nothing more out of our time here than a taste of that as a possibility, then our time will be extremely well spent. There's a a friend of ours, Matty Weingast, has come out with a a new collection of poems. It's interpretations of uh, the poems of the early Buddhist nuns. It's a beautiful collection. I think uh, Sally or someone may have, maybe more than one of us, read one of these poems in the in the first half of this retreat. I was just looking through the book. It fell open at this page of this perfect poem, um, which I took as kind of a sign, but it may, may be that someone already read it <laughs> and the book was kind of creased there. So if you've heard it before, I, I'm sorry. But I think um, it, it it speaks to what I've been talking about. It And it links really nicely with the story I told. Um, It even happens in the same location. This Mitra and Devapriya were uh, near Rajagaha, and this takes place near the Vulture Peak, which is just outside that town. I've been there. Uh, There's uh, many stories about that place. Many great teachings were given there. I think this whole talk is actually just an excuse for me to read this poem. So this is the thing I want you to hear tonight. So this poem was by a nun named Dantika. While walking along the river, after a long day meditating on Vulture Peak, I watched an elephant splashing its way out of the water and up the bank. Hello, my friend, a man waiting there said, scratching the elephant behind its ear. Did you have a good bath? The elephant stretched out its leg, the man climbed up, and the two rode off like that together. Seeing what had once been so wild, now a friend and companion to this good man, I took a seat under the nearest tree and reached out a gentle hand to my own mind. Truly, I thought, this is why I came to the woods. Beautiful image, this possibility that reaching out a gentle hand to our own mind. I think I might have mentioned earlier in the retreat that uh, there was a period of uh, around little more than 10 years where I, I was living in San Francisco. This was in the 80s to the early 90s. And, and for a time there, when I was living there, I worked as a volunteer uh, on, on the weekends occasionally when I could get some time. I, I volunteered with a program and we were studying the migration of hawks through the Marin headlands there just on the north side of the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, and at certain times of year, the hawks um they like to be there year round, but some of them would they would also congregate there before crossing uh the bay and they went across that narrow point near the bridge because they don 't like to fly many of them don 't like to fly over large expanses of open water and uh, so we were um counting them and uh, to get a sense of how many were passing through there, and we also would very carefully uh, trap some of them to um, see check their health and check them for parasites and weigh them and get a sense for their uh, how they 're doing and it was all in service of uh, trying to maintain habitat and and care for these animals, beautiful, beautiful animals, these birds and so if you are going to trap and and band, we put a band on their wrist also so that if they were uh, found either trapped again or perhaps found dead, we would know about their, their movements and their habits up and down the coast. And so um, you have to really handle a red-tailed hawk very carefully. Because they're um, big, big birds. Wingspan might be almost five feet meter and a half, and they have very strong talons. They can put it right through your thumb. If they're afraid, they might bite you. But they're birds, and birds have hollow bones. That's why they fly so easily, as they're light, relatively light. So you have to hold them with this incredible combination of uh, firmness and gentleness so they don't harm themselves trying to, uh, flapping too much but they don't put their talon through your thumb. First-hand experience. (laughs) So I like this image of holding a bird with this gentle firmness. You know, we might not let it. It's like this sense of reaching out a gentle hand to our mind, relating to our mind like that. We don't let it run all over the place, necessarily. We don't crush it, or harm it, or injure it by holding it too tightly. And this is not to deny the fact that I think most of us, if we look in our mind and heart, we'll see that there's room for improvement there. At least if we look at the contents. You know, we're here because we're interested in transformation. We wouldn't come on a retreat like this otherwise. But we need to hold this and understand it in a skillful way. It might be useful just to start with exploring what the mind is, this mind that we reach our gentle hand out to. What is it? We have a lot of ideas about it. tend to think of it in terms of owning it. It's my mind. The assumptions we make about, about the mind might not actually be a reflection of reality. If we try looking for it, we can't find anything. At least not, nothing that has thingness I mean, if we look at our experience, what is it that we can know? What is our experience? We look at this in meditation, that's what we're doing. Connecting with our ongoing moment-to-moment experience. There's one of six things that's happening there. There's contact at the basis of sensitivity of eye, ear, nose, mouth and tongue, body and mind think of these as the the six sense bases in meditation. They're touched, constantly touched, so sensitive, constantly touched by life. And sense consciousness arising, seeing if the eye works, seeing consciousness, if the ear is working, contact, hearing consciousness and so forth. That's the flow of experience, contact, knowing, contact knowing, over and over. Mind is this process. These two things. And we arising, co-arising. We see this over and over in meditation. We tend to assume that there's some kind of thing <laughs> associated with this process some kind of substance, something with inherent, ongoing existence. But we can't find that thing. Maybe it's better to turn it into a verb, a minding. It's minding. There's this minding going on. It's a process. And happening by itself. We don't have to do it. You have to make make that process happen. It just that's the nature of things. It's what it does. So we spend all this time observing, getting very intimate with this process, this minding. We get very intimate with it. This radical kind of intimacy. That's how I see it. Very close. We rub right up against it. But we tend to focus on the contents there. We often overlook just how amazing it is that there is this knowing happening. It's so amazing. Right now, it's happening right now. Happening by itself. Feel that. It's incredible. We we look at the content so much and it seems, the mind seems to get it up to all so much m- weirdness and nonsense and stuff we don't want it to be doing. <laughs> you know, how much of it did you decide today? How much of what went on in there did you decide, yeah, okay, I wanna have that weird thought and, you know, have that funky jingle from that 1963 TV show. <laughs> Playing over and over in there and this nasty thought about what a worthless being I am. Did you choose any of that? <laughs> the weird memories, plans, desires. We don't have much control over the contents, do we? These are the lyrics from a song by Jimmy Dale Gilmore. My mind's got a mind of its own takes me out of walking when I'd rather stay at home. takes me out to parties when I'd rather be alone. Oh, my mind's got a mind of of its own. (laughs) I've been doing things I thought I'd never do. I've been getting into trouble without ever meaning to. I just soon settled down, but I'm right back up again. I feel just like a leaf out in the wind. I seem to forget half the things I start. I try to build a house, and then I tear the place apart. I freeze myself on fire and I burn myself on ice. I can't count to one without thinking twice. (laughs) Ain't it the truth? But in one sutta, the Buddha described the mind. He called it the Pabasarachitta. Pabasarachitta. Sometimes Pali sounds so good. Chitta is the word for mind. Pabhāsara means uh, radiant, brightly shining, you could say. Chanda pābhās, bright shining moon. It's a name often given. And he said that this this pabhāsara chitta, this radiant, shining mind, luminous sometimes translated as luminous, he said that that's there all the time, but sometimes it's uh, covered over or obscured by uh, visiting energies. In one translation it says adventitious defilements. Adventitious means um, it's, it's something that is not inherent or intrinsic to visiting. is a simple way of saying it. And this defilement, the word... Um, You often translated the English translation of the word kilesa. I prefer the word kilesa. We've spoken about this a lot over these first weeks of this retreat. It's a catch all term for the energies of greed, hatred and delusion. These root roots of suffering, root causes of suffering in our lives in the world, these energies. And in, this, uh, in the Buddha's teaching, uh, one way that uh, freedom, liberation is seen and understood is, that is, is, is the process of seeing through these things, uprooting them in a certain sense, or at least rending, rendering them powerless, or uprooting them from the mind stream altogether. In one place the Buddha ver- said very simply and directly, these words, extinction of greed, extinction of hatred, extinction of delusion. This I call nibbana. This I call freedom. The teacher uh, Tanjeff Tanisaro Bhikkhu, um, points to a, maybe kind of obvious but actually a very profound um, understanding that relates to this uh, Characterizing of the mind as, as having this um, uh, luminous, radiant, you could say almost a pure nature there that gets obscured. To perceive the mind's luminosity means understanding that defilements such as greed, aversion, or delusion are not intrinsic to its nature. Without this understanding, it would really be impossible to practice. It's important to see this, to get a sense for the reality of this. Because if if these things were inherent, intrinsic to the mind, and we tend to think of it that way a lot, then there'd ultimately be nothing we could do. But since they are just visiting, since they're not intrinsic to the mind, then freedom is a possibility, it's a reality. I don't really like, and I've said this before, Um, But I don't like the word defilement as a translation for kilesa. It just sounds bad. You know, we're just walking buckets of defilement. (laughs) Not good. And it tends to feed this sense of wrongness sometimes we see these things arising in the mind and we think oh it's evidence um you know if if greg could only see greg's always talking about he just sees goodness in us if he only knew the truth (laughs) let me tell you folks i know the truth (laughs) i've been looking at my own mind for a long time now (laughs) there's nothing going on in any years that i haven't seen i bet oh maybe some You know, little special tidbits, (laughs) but it's all pretty familiar. (laughs) You know, these visiting energies, they are not evil, wrong, or bad. They're just misguided. They're actually the untrained mind's attempts to deal with the truths of anicca, dukkha, and anatta, to deal with the truths of change, of unreliability, of uncontrollability. They're trying to be helpful. They just are kind of confused about what would actually be helpful in the long run. We have to be careful how we relate to these energies because we can fall into, into struggling with them in a way that isn't helpful, isn't useful. You know, these are very simple. Think of them as very simple animals. They only know how to do one thing. Wanting mind only knows how to want. Desire only knows how to desire. Aversion only knows how to averse, how to resist. Delusion, confusion only knows how to be confused. They don't know how to do anything else. They can't be educated or trained or, or coerced into behaving better. That's not where we should be spending our energy. We might have to be kind of firm and draw some boundaries. We don't want them running the show. But we need to relate to them on our terms, not on their terms. We have to start learning that change. That's a radical shift. That's a huge change. Because when we take the contents of our mind personally, then we have this strong tendency to identify with these visiting energies and the thoughts and the mind states that they give rise to. And then we use this, unfortunately, we fall then into this way of, of seeing, where instead of just recognizing them, what they are in the moment, We fall into this judging attitude that it's wrong or bad, that it's come. And even worse, I am wrong and bad because it arose in my mind. It's my fault somehow. If I were any good as a meditator, if I was even a decent human being, these things wouldn't ever arise. We have this idea. (laughs) We wouldn't put it like that, but look, take a look and see. See how we're relating to them. It's a kind of madness, really, taking these things personally. It's like taking the weather personally, or the process of aging. And we do do that, don't we? You know, as though getting aging is a reflection of bad taste or or a mistake that we should have been able to avoid if we'd had our act together. (laughs) I mean, that's kind of out there in the culture, you know, like you're blowing it. (laughs) I am blowing it so royally. I mean, look. Someone just sent me a photograph from quite a while ago when I was traveling with some friends in India, and, oh, it was really a different look, and a lot more hair, and it was brown. (laughs) Yeah, weren't so many wrinkles. I didn't have to rearrange my face every morning back then when I got up, you know, and the way it kind of was all gotten smashed over, you know, to kind of put it back on the front because it's all kind of mushed off to one side. (laughs) You young folks, you just wait. You know, these kalesas, they're conditioned arisings. <laughs> they arise out of conditions, like the weather, right? And the forces of habit and conditioning, these energies, s- it's so strong, you know. We've been, we've been relating to these energies. They're, they're not to be underestimated. We've been relating to them on their terms for a long time, maybe for lifetimes. And we're not going to shift that just by a decision or in one retreat necessarily. And sometimes they have the upper hand in the mind and the heart. But this training in mindfulness gives us this possibility to shift our way of relating to them. When we we start by letting go of taking them personally, we see that they are visiting caused, conditioned energies. They show up when the conditions are right for them to show up, when they have a way in. And mindful awareness gives us this possibility that we stop feeding them through identification and reactivity or by acting out the, the uh, mind states that they give rise to. And we, f- we meet them directly, we sit with them without having to act on them, without having to do something so we don't feel them don't have to see them. We just meet them. Oh, there you are. And say hello to them. And this gives us the possibility to make wise choices in terms of which energies are worth, worth cultivating which aren't. Because they aren't the only thing that arises in the mind. Their, their wholesome counterparts also arise. Renunciation, generosity, letting go, kindness, compassion. <clears throat> These also arise. These are worth cultivating. We see what's worth cultivating, what's better to abandon, it's to stop feeding them. And if we stop feeding them, they lose their power. Eventually, they fall away entirely. They go out by themselves. It's like a fire going out when its fuel is exhausted. If we stop feeding, putting logs and paper and stuff in there, the fire just goes out. That's just the nature. It goes out by itself. And these wholesome uh, qualities They arise, they're revealed, really. They're always there. They're already there. You don't have to get them. You already got them. And there's a way that starting to see things in this way, shifting our view in this way, is a doorway to compassion. Even to forgiveness. When we study our own mind, we're studying everyone's mind. The processes there are, th- are the same. The, the stories differ a little bit, but the processes, it's the same. We're so much more the same than we are different. And the more we understand our own mind and heart, the greater is our capacity to understand uh, what's happening for others. This leads to a radical shift in our lives. And these things that seem like uh, only problems, in just one moment they shift from obstacles to our freedom, to the very um, vehicles for our liberation. They become the path to freedom. And then when you see these energies you can say, hello, this is my, my path to freedom. This is a chance for me to understand and release struggle and suffering in my life. Someone, I'm not sure who said this, maybe one of my colleagues know, but somebody once said, if if it's in the way, it is the way. Simple words, but really important, really powerful. And then there is this reconnection with this citta that starts to happen. This incredible uh, mind, the knowing mind, this radiant mind. It's always there. It's underneath all of this other stuff. It doesn't go away. It's never far from us. there below all of our struggles and confusion. It's really, you could say, this is our our birthright or this is our true nature underneath it all. So I'll end this evening with uh, a few words from a teacher of mine uh, named Sayada Ujjotika. Comes back to this sense of, of reaching out a gentle hand. To our mind, this befriending our own mind and heart. How can you make your mind your real friend? By practicing mindfulness, by really watching your mind, by really paying attention throughout the day. Then you will see the truth about your mind, and when you see the truth, gradually your mind will become more and more pure, and in this way it will become your friend. I will sit quietly for a couple of minutes now. As we sit here, see if you can reach out a gentle hand to your own mind, your own heart. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com